Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning again to the book of Hebrews, this morning to chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4. And verses 1 through 3, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us fear, if, while the promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And let us pray. Father, thank you that we have gathered together here this day. Thank you that we have been able to worship a God that is glorious and a God that is um, worthy to be known and praised and trusted in these moments, I would ask for the help of your Holy Spirit uh, to help me to convey your word in a way that is pleasing to thyself, in a way that is good for the souls of each one that is here this morning. I pray that you would assist us and give us insight and understanding, and might it be enriching to our hearts and edifying to our, our lives, and might it be helpful uh, not only to our thinking process, but also to our, our walk uh, for Thee through Your precious and holy Son. So we commit this time to You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last time uh, that I was in Hebrews, uh, our focus was on chapter 4 and verse 1. And, and we saw that, and kind of in the flow of thought here, it helps us to understand how we should respond to the failure of the wilderness generation or the, the disobedience of the wilderness generation. Uh, we read in, in chapter 3 that God was angry with them and that that anger manifested itself by the fact that the, the bodies of those who were disobedient were, were strewn over the wilderness over a period of 40 years. And uh, verse 18 of the, of the previous chapter it makes it clear that they did not enter this rest because of disobedience and then verse, ni verse 19 because of unbelief. And his rest, fundamentally, but not exclusively, had reference to the, the land of promise. And, and Philip Hughes, who I have found helpful, I think kind of summarizes the thought well. He says, in the passage which this verse introduces, our author's purpose is to apply to his readers still more insistently the solemn lesson which the history of their forefathers in the wilderness teaches. And in so doing, he makes it plain that the scope of the promise of entering into God's rest extends far beyond the historical event of the entry of the Israelites into Canaan under Joshua's leadership. The possession of the land of Canaan was indeed a fulfillment of the promise, but only in a proximate this-worldly sense. The perspective of faith, of faith discerns its ultimate fulfillment in the entry into a heavenly country and a heavenly Jerusalem, in an eternal consummation effected through the redemptive mediation of the incarnate Son. So just to kind of state the same thing in my own words, what he's saying is um, that was a fulfillment of the promise to enter into the land, but through the eyes of faith you see it as representing something much more glorious. That is what we'll see is the new heavens and the new earth, and that is because of the mediatorial work of the person of Christ in our behalf. 
So verse, verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 is clear about how one should respond to the failure of this disobedience. Namely, it's by the spiritual grace of fearing God. So when we ask the question, okay, I read about the failure of the wilderness generation. How should I as a Christian respond? The answer of the text is to fear God. And verse 1 adds two further motivations to that. One, while a promise remains of entering his rest that refers to the duration of our time in this world and then a second motivation lest anyone should seem to have come short of it we are pilgrims in this world is passing through and we continue in the faith then in verse 2 there's a further reason to fear God it's because we've had good news preached to us we should fear God because we have heard the gospel or persuaded of its reality and of the issues that it addresses so what the writer brings out in verse 2 is the reality that the good news was preached, first of all, to the readers, but it's been preached to us as well. We have heard the good news. And it's to, to feel the force of this as a further motivation to fear God. It's presented as a further motivation to fear God. So this morning, I want to offer, I think, four observations that relate to um, hearing the good news in this context of being a further motivation to fear God. That's where it's at here in the flow of thought. So four observations about hearing the good news. In the first place, it is a great privilege to have heard the good news. Now, the common factor between the wilderness generation and the readers is that they both had good news preached to them. That was the, the point of unity between them. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. And the author includes himself with the hearers, those who had heard the good news. They had this in common. Now, the term good news is um, to, um, to announce good news. It can be used generally of um, good news like 1 Thessalonians 3.6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, but mostly it's of the divine message of salvation, messianic proclamation of the gospel. For example, it's translated preach in Luke 4.43. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. In, in Acts 8.35, it said of Philip with regard to the Ethiopian eunuch, beginning from the scripture, he preached Jesus to him, he conveyed the good news to him. Ephesians 2.17, he came and preached peace to those who were far away. But let, let me stress here under this heading, it's a great privilege and blessing for, for anyone to be able to say that the good news was preached to me, in part because it's, it's a message that deals with the most crucial concern in the world, which is the eternal salvation of our souls. Uh, that, that's the most vital consideration that anyone could possibly entertain. It bears upon why it is that Christ even came into this world. She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. He came to seek and to save uh, those who were lost. Uh, Jesus said to, his, to the multitudes and to his disciples on one occasion, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So it's a great privilege to have someone, really anyone, take the time to convey to you the issues that are at stake with respect to your soul, uh, to make clear the eternal wrath that is to be avoided, uh, the new heaven and the new earth that can be enjoyed for all who repent and turn from their sins and, and trust in Christ. It's a great benefit to have someone take the time to, to clarify the status of somebody's soul apart from Christ. They're, they're a child of disobedience. They're the object of, of God's settled despair pleasure and, and the certainty of eternal life if they re repent and have faith in the person of Christ. Relatedly, it's a great privilege 
to be closely associated with one who lives out the message of the gospel. It's a privilege to have heard the gospel, but it's also a, a privilege to be around a person who lives out the message of the gospel. It lends a, a certain credibility and force uh, to the message. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 <clears throat> wrote, You, however, continue... And the things that you have learned and become convinced of. And then he says, knowing from whom you have learned them. And from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy knew the sacred writings from childhood. He was raised in an atmosphere of truth. And then Paul adds this statement, knowing from whom you have heard them. So he was in close proximity to some people whose lives adorned the message of the gospel. Since he, he knew the sacred writings from childhood, the most likely people in mind, I, I believe, are found in chapter 1 and verse 5. I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. Now, because the term whom is plural, it may very well uh, uh, have reference to the Apostle Paul himself. So Timothy was in a position of great advantage. He, he not only heard the good news, he saw it lived out in the lives of people that were around him. So it's a great privilege to have heard the gospel and then to see its power in action in the lives of others. Let me add um, also under this first heading, um, hearing and knowing the truth of the gospel brings about greater responsibility, greater responsibility. More, with more light comes higher accountability. Uh, the verb had good, good news preached is in the perfect tense, and Philip Pugh's comments on the significance of that. Quite literally, the opening clause reads, for we also have been evangelized just as they were. The perfect tense of the verb implying the completeness of the evangelization that had taken place, thus leaving no room for any excuse to the effect that the evangelization had been inadequate or deficient. It, it's sort of like Matthew chapter 11, where it says, Then he, Jesus, began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than you, because you had more light, but you still did not repent. The, the miracles testified to, to his supernatural power, and the miracles verified the legitimacy of his message. So it's a great privilege to have heard the clear good news of the gospel, but it also heightens the level of responsibility to respond to it and not reject the message. A second observation would be to notice the equivalence of the message that was heard. The equivalence of the message that was heard. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. So both his readers, that is the wilderness generation, are presented as having heard the good news preached to them. Um, one wrote the words, just as they did, indicates that the comparison between the two generations is very close. The message of good news heard by the Exodus generation was the, promised, the promise that God would deliver them from slavery and bring them to Canaan. Just to, some passages from the Old Testament that make that point. Exodus 3.16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to be saying, I will indeed... 
I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of Canaan. It's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. And also from Exodus chapter 6, the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he shall let them go. Under compulsion he shall drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Verse 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will deliver you from their bondage, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, then I will take you for my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we notice this was a promise that was first made to Abraham. In our text, the situation is presented as being similar uh, between those who are, to whom it is presented as well as the wilderness generation. William Lane wrote, The message of good news heard by the Exodus generation was the announcement of Caleb and Joshua concerning the goodness of the land and its possession. Uh, Numbers 13.30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, uh, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. And again in Numbers 14, um, they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now, secondly, the, the fact that in both cases they are presenting as hearing the good news would indicate that there's a correspondence between the substance of the message communicated to the wilderness generation and also to the Hebrews. O'Brien writes, the listeners are in a privileged position for as the first clause states emphatically, good news came to them just as to the Exodus generation. And and, and as Philip Hughes puts it, there's a real equivalence between the promise of the Old Testament and the evangel of the New Testament for their essential content is the same. The former looks ahead to fulfillment in Christ. The latter proclaims the accomplishment in Christ of what was promised. Let me offer a couple of factors that underscore the, the equivalence of the message. And the first one, just very briefly, uh, the use of the term that means to evangelize or good news in both cases. That, that would indicate that there is a, an equivalence with respect to the content of the message. And secondly, a point that I will develop a little bit further, the significance of what they heard was a reiteration of what was promised to Abraham. The, the significance of what they heard was a reiteration of what was promised to Abraham with respect to the land promises. Back in Genesis chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in all your families of the earth of the earth shall be blessed. So this this. This promise that included the land was first made to Abraham. Now, if we ask the question, what did Abraham himself think about the land? What did he himself think about being in the promised land? 
Well, Hebrews 11.8 tells us, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And here's the reason. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he regards himself as an alien and as a foreigner in the land. And he, he was looking for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He's looking forward to the eternal, eternal new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the earthly here is only symbolic of an eternal future reality. The earthly, the promised land could only symbolize in a physical sense that which was infinitely more glorious. And if we ask the question, well, why did Abraham think this way? He's looking clearly through the lens of faith. Uh, what, what gave him this e eternal transcendent view of the land? Well, I believe the answer is Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, which reveals that he was justified by faith. It says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now then the question is, well, what did Abraham believe? And it says that he believed God and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he was justified on the basis of a righteousness of another. What did he believe about God? Well, Charles Hodge says he believed the promise of redemption, which is the promise that we embrace when we receive and rest on Christ for salvation. And Galatians 3.8 says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. And Thomas Schreiner in his work on Galatians says the promise that all nations will be blessed in Abraham has a future dimension and points ultimately to Jesus Christ. Abraham put his faith in the promise of God. And hence his faith was not merely an abstract belief in God, but a belief in God's promise which culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, if we ask the question, how could faith in a promised Messiah possibly save him before Jesus Christ died on the cross and before he paid the penalty for sins? And the answer, of course you want to know the answer to that question, I hope. The answer to that question is that the efficacy and the effectiveness of what Christ accomplished on the cross applied to all who put their faith in the coming Messiah before it actually happened. Now there are some who debate the best translation of Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, but I think the King James translation um, makes the point, and, and the point it makes is valid. It says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, that's the beast, whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's interesting in this connection to note that the prophet Isaiah wrote about Christ hundreds and hundreds of years before he actually suffered on the cross. And he regards it in his mind as something that has already happened. Let me just read to you a few verses from Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately former majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. 
afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He's writing this hundreds of years before Christ died on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Edward Young indicates these verbs there. There. Um, there are to be understood as prophetic perfects. To the mind of the speaker, what he depicts is so vivid and sure of occurrence that he, that he sets us forth as already having taken place. I don't really know uh, why it is, but if, the, if it rains really hard one day and then it's sunny the next day, have you ever noticed how everything is clearer? Much, I mean, the mountain is clearer, the, the, the flowers are more vibrant, and Isaiah writes here like he's already been there and, and he's perceived exactly what happens and he even knows what the motivations of the person of Christ are. So it's true, the blood of bulls and goats typified and look forward to this once for all efficacious work of Christ on the cross. But its virtue was applied to all who embrace the promise of the coming Redeemer. John Owen puts it like this. Now, upon the day of the finishing of the world or of completing the fabric of it, upon the entrance of sin, the promise of Christ was given, namely that the seed of the woman should break the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. In this promise, the Lord Christ was a lamb slain, though not actually, yet as to the virtue of his incarnation, whereby he became a lamb, the lamb of God in his death, wherein he was slain to take away the sins of the world. So there, there is a, a uniformity, it seems to me, of content between the essence of the good news preached to those in the wilderness generation and to the first century readers and to all Christians. And to quote Hughes again, there's a real equivalence between the promise of the Old Testament and the evangel of the New Testament. Their essential content is the same. The former looks ahead to fulfillment in Christ. The latter proclaims the accomplishment in Christ of what was promised. Well, then a third observation um, that is the necessity of faith to benefit from the good news of the gospel. The necessity of faith to benefit from the good news of the gospel. We go on here, and the word they heard did not profit them. This is the wilderness generation. The word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So they had good news conveyed to them, but they didn't benefit from it because it, it wasn't mixed with faith. The term translated united is to, to mix together or to uh, agree with, to bring about a, a blend by mixture of, of various items. I was looking up a recipe for chocolate chip cookies. I have never cooked them in my life, but I'm very skilled at eating them. But in this one particular recipe, uh, it said you need flour, baking soda, salt, butter, granulated sugar, brown sugar, an egg, vanilla, and chocolate chips. I don't know anything about cooking it, but I do know one thing. When they stay separate, nothing is going to happen. They have to be mixed together. They have to be mingled together if you're going to end up with good chocolate chip cookies. And that's, that's the idea of this term, is to be compounded or to become assembled into a united whole by the mixing or combining of, of different parts. And, and, and faith here is the sense of, of trust and strong confidence or reliance in someone or something. And, and William Lane wrote, the past generation received the promise in vain because they refused to believe the word that 
was heard. Numbers 14.11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Spurn is to, to despise, to look upon with contempt. By the way, this is the first occurrence of faith in, in Hebrews. And it has a sense of trusting and relying, but also of, an, of a confident expectation. You see that if you look across the page to chapter 6 and verse 12. So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the, inherit the promises. So we can affirm, uh, affirm in, in light of this, uh, under this heading, number one, hearing the word of God is no assurance that it will be embraced. I wish it was, you wish it was, but hearing the word of God is no assurance that it will be embraced. One wrote, hearing a message of good news does not guarantee that it will be received. John Owen wrote, the sole cause of the promise being ineffectual unto salvation in and towards them to whom it is preached is in themselves and their own unbelief. Now, secondly, God-pleasing faith really trusts and embraces the, the veracity and the truth of Holy Scripture. God-pleasing faith really, truly relies on the truth of Holy Scripture. John Brown wrote, It is by a believing principle that it becomes influential. As it is by digesting food, it becomes nutritive. Truth, unless believed, mingled with the springs of moral action, cannot serve its purpose either. When the Israelites heard the joyful annunciation, they would not go up, for they did not believe the Lord their God. If they had believed the divine declaration, the Lord their God would go before you and fight for them. The joyful annunciation would have profited them. They would have gone up. They would have entered and, and obtained possession. But because they did not believe, they would not go up and rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. And instead of being profited by the joyful annunciation, it became an occasion of more heinous guilt and more aggravated punishment. And the joyful annunciation made to us will not profit us unless it be mingled with faith in us when we hear it. The mere hearing of the gospel will do us no good. It must be believed in order to, it's serving the purpose of leading into the enjoyment of God's rest. So that this kind of unbelief was culpable because God said to them he would go up and fight for them, but that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for them to believe it and rely upon it. And their blameworthiness, I think, goes a little deeper. It, it means a lack of trust in the character of God. It means a, a lack of believing in his power, a lack of believing in his omniscience, a lack of believing in the truth of his being. So we see here the necessity uh, of, in order to benefit, the necessity of faith in order to benefit from the word, the necessity of mingling faith with the word. Well, then, fourthly, the eternal and glorious benefit of believing the good news of the gospel. The eternal and the glorious benefit of believing the good news of the gospel. The first part of verse 3, um, for we who have believed enter that rest. So there's a movement here uh, from warning to hope, from what should have been done to what actually was done. Um, unbelief, one wrote, excluded the excess generation from God's rest. In response to faith, there will be and there is entrance into God's rest. The assertion of verse 3 provides an antithesis to verse 2. What was lost to those who refused to believe the promise became the possession of those who believe God. In, in Numbers 14.24, it says, But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit, has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. And one wrote the description of the community as, as we who have believed reflects what is said about faith and the word which was heard in verse 2. They are those who have responded to the message with conviction and who live in the present 
who live in the present in the light of the promise extended for the future. So the thing is, we want to be like Caleb, uh, to follow God fully, which simply means being persuaded of the veracity and the truth of his word, relying upon his word. It's like what the Apostle Paul wrote of those in Thessalonica. For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which you, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word works in the hearts of those who embrace it. It's operative in the hearts of those who embrace it. And one final thought here. Um, that, that it's true that this um, entering this rest is in one dimension, it's reserved for the future to enter God's rest. But there is a, a present experience of this rest for all who, who believe in the person of Christ now and continue having faith in him. A couple of weeks ago, I quoted Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all you all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So there, there is a rest and a kind of peace that comes into the soul through faith in Christ. But that's not the end of it. It continues on in the Christian life. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And this is nothing new. Anyone who has ever put faith in Christ as the coming Messiah or the Messiah that has already come will have this rest and peace for their souls. Jeremiah 6.16 says, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the way is and walk in it and you shall find rest for your souls and let us pray father we do thank you for your holy word i pray that you would take what we have considered this morning and and make appropriate application to our hearts give us insight and wisdom in applying these things and understanding these things for your glory i i thank you for each one that is here this morning and i, I pray to use your holy truth to um, uphold them and strengthen them and encourage them. We, we thank you for the glory of the gospel. We thank you for the power of the gospel. I pray that you would help us individually to be those that truly, increasingly, regularly delight our souls in the word, that, that we mingle faith with your word. We rely upon it for your honor and for your glory and for the ongoing good of our souls. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.